Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. We have a full week of guests and topics designed to help you bring clarity to the chaos. Today, Dr. Douglas Petrovich begins a series looking at the archaeological evidence that affirms what the Bible says about the Israelites in Egypt. And Greg Patton will be living in today's world. This Friday and Saturday, Billy Crone and Larry Spargimino headline a special prophecy conference in Anchorage, Alaska. You don't want to miss this special conference, June 24th and 25th, this Friday and Saturday in Anchorage, Alaska. Register today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144, or you can register online swrc.com. Thanks to the work of today's guest, never again will students of the Bible have to listen to uninformed professors denounce the story of Israelites in Egypt without a ready defense for its validity. Here's our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, to introduce today's special guest. Dr. Douglas Petrovich is a professor of biblical history and exegesis at the Bible Seminary in Houston, Texas. He loves the Lord, loves the Word of God, and he has been trained in the original languages of the Bible and especially in the languages of the ancient world. And he brings a lot of insight. We do have a book that he has authored. It's called Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. And I understand this will show the historicity of the material that we have in the book of Exodus, something that is challenged so many times And yet we believe that God's word is true. It's not a fairy tale. It's certainly not a myth. We've got a lot of things to talk about. So, Doug, thank you so much for being our guest. My pleasure, Larry. It's great to be here with you today. Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are, what you do, and how did you become a Christian? I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, which, of course, you may know that as the city where LeBron is from. I was from there before he was, but, of course, I don't have the same credentials he does. Moved to Southern California in 1983, haven't lived in Ohio since, and basically the Lord has just taken us different places since then. I did my bachelor's degree from the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and that's where I met my wife. We got married in 1991, and then we went, for me, back to Southern California and worked on two master's degrees at the Master's Seminary. And after completing those, we went to Siberia, Russia, where we were part of the founding of a seminary, a Christian seminary, in the middle of Russia. It's 11 time zones, and if you go halfway east to west, that's where we were in the Novosibirsk area. So we were there for 10 years, and then we trained Russians to take over for us and left, and that allowed me to do a PhD. So I did a third master's degree at the University of Toronto and went right into the PhD from there and got a PhD in the Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations Department. My major is Syro-Palestinian archaeology in my PhD, and the first minor is Egyptian language, which is hieroglyphics, so Middle and Late Egyptian. I'm married with three adult children, one of whom just recently got married, so I have the first one married. So how I became a Christian, it was back in junior high. I had pretty much grown up in the church. You know, my parents took me. I remember my kindergarten Sunday school teacher and learned a lot, but 
really didn't know if all of that was true. And right about junior high, all of the important questions of life kind of just hit me. What's life all about? Why am I here? What happens after I die? Does God really exist? And if he does, what does he expect of me? Do I have purpose in life? Right? All of these questions and more. And right about that time, I really started to watch carefully the life of the junior high pastor of our church. We were part of a mega church, and there must have been 200 kids, right, in the junior high department. And he seemed to single me out all the time. He would ask me questions. How are things going with your family? What's going on at school? Things going well with your sister? Because she came before me, you know, and had gone into high school there, and he knew her well. And, you know, he asked about my spiritual life. And watching him with me and with other people. And he would take his vacations and go down on the eastern coast, you know, mainly to Florida, and share the gospel. That's how zealous he was. So basically, God used his life as a model for me that this is what it looks like when a man gives himself over to God. And God really used that to answer my questions and show me that he was real. When people hear that you're a scholar, you have a PhD, Egyptology, hieroglyphics and all, and they think, well, this guy's just floating around in the stratosphere. How does all of this relate to the Bible? Now, I know you love the Bible. You believe in biblical inspiration and errancy and all those good things. Make the connection for us. Mm -hmm. I would start by saying definitely I'm educated way beyond my intelligence. I've loved everything I've learned. It's not because I'm extremely brilliant that the Lord gave me the things he did and the discoveries that he allowed me to stumble into. It's because of his equipping and the passions that he gave me, one of which is the Bible, and that's where it started. And basically, when I this goes back to when I was in Southern California the first time, so from 83 to 88. I was part of a megachurch there too, and we had an adult Sunday school class, and he just loved to share the gospel. Now, I was very introverted. You'd almost never know that, I suppose, if you know me nowadays, but I'm very naturally introverted. And God really pulled me out of my own personality grip to show me that it's not an excuse to use your personality, not to build into the lives of people and to to initiate with love, right? Love always initiates, Larry. It always does. So this guy's name was Mike Sanders, and boy, did he love to share the gospel. And he would try to coerce people in the class to go out on monthly outreaches with him, right, to share the gospel. And of course, I was petrified and I I refused to consider it, but he would always track me down and we were at a monthly social once and I was trying to hide behind people and he saw that I was there. So he, you know, went around them and came to me and, and really just strongly encouraged me to come, just try it out once. And I said, okay, Mike, just to make you happy, I will. So I went with him. And of course, right before it happened, I wanted to cancel. I didn't want to go. But the Lord somehow allowed me enough courage to go ahead and and do it. And boy, I just loved it. And he ended up taking me out just one-on-one later, teaching me how to share the gospel one-on-one. And I loved that. And here's the thing, Larry. People asked me questions in those conversations that we had that I couldn't answer. And that frustrated me to death because I knew that person was searching for an answer. And I wanted to give that person an answer. So what happened was God created something in me, this zeal that said, I'm not going to say I don't know twice, right? Now, if it's something I can't know, then I'll tell the person I researched everything I could to figure out the answer to that, and there's just no answer. Like the Trinity, explain the Trinity. Well, 
you know, good luck with that one, right? For all of us who've had lots of theology classes, it's still difficult. So that's really what God used to take me where I'm at because I had this love of history that started in junior high and this love of the Bible and now this passion for helping people to understand truth and to get answers to their questions. And that has led me to where I am today. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. You have a zeal for Christ, for sharing Christ. He's what it's all about. I would call it intellectual integrity. I remember Francis Schaeffer said, an honest question deserves an honest answer. I appreciate guys like you, and I consider myself in the same category because I know there are answers for most of the stuff. Of course, the mysteries like the Trinity, that's beyond us. But I'm glad that there are men and women like you and like me who will dig and dig and dig and find the answer. That's so encouraging. Well, can you give us an overview of the research you've been doing over, say, the last 10 years? You know, Larry, I was minding my own business, actually studying for my comprehensive exams. It was in January of 2012. And I was looking online for material for my study. And lo and behold, I bumped into the website for the archaeological excavations at a site in the eastern Nile Delta called Avaris. Tell Eldaba, if you want to use that term, that's the modern Arabic term for it. It ends up that these excavations are the most extensive archaeological excavations that have been done anywhere within the ancient Near East, for sure. And these excavations have produced an enormous wealth of material. The Austrian government is financing this dig, and it's been going on since, I think, the 60s in full force. And what they've discovered there is amazing. And there are scholars who came before me who identified that with biblical Ramses, where the Israelites under Jacob settled their family. So I had already by this time published a journal article in 2006 on the Exodus pharaoh. And I tried to make a case there that there's only one pharaoh of the 18th or 19th dynasties who fits all of the biographical requirements of the Exodus pharaoh. And of course, if you take the Bible literally, the guy who's your candidate, he has to nail it on every one of those requirements, right? If he fails on one, that's it. It's kind of like the prophets, right? If a prophet spoke something that wasn't right, he had to be right 100% of the time or that's, it's all over. 99% doesn't work. So I had concluded that Amenhotep II is the only candidate that works. And so by that time, I already had this extensive research done. So I knew when the timing of the Exodus was. I knew who the Exodus pharaoh was. And the timing, of course, is the middle of the 15th century BC. So the early date, the conservative The early date, date of the yeah. Exodus. Contra... Cecil B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments <laughs> and, and Disney's Prince of Egypt, right? Yeah, what is it, 1280 or something like that? Right, that doesn't, right. doesn't fit. Yeah, it doesn't fit the biblical chronology if you take it literally. You have to allegorize the numbers in the chronological passages wow. in the Old Testament, which doesn't work with me, hermeneutically, which I teach. So I stumbled on this evidence for the Tenth Plague consisting of animals, and there are four mentioned in Exodus 11 and 12, dogs, cattle, sheep, and goats. And of course, the sheep and goats are mentioned in reference to the Israelites. And guess what? That's what the archaeologists found more of than anything else. They found mass burials. And Larry, this wasn't in the residential district, right, where the people lived. This is in the palatial district where the king had three palaces and did the work of the state of Egypt there. So they found mass burials of animals, meaning multiple animals buried together. And the majority were sheep and goats, and the majority were in their first year of age. And of course, I went to the Bible, and I looked carefully at the English translations, and it says 
that the sheep and goats the Israelites were supposed to sacrifice were to be year-olds, right? And I said, hmm, this doesn't make sense because the archaeologists found less than a year old, the majority of them. And some of them had been humanely killed, like a blow to the back of the head. There was one ram that was giving birth and the ewe died right in the middle of the canal. So there are these odd situations. But when you look at the Hebrew text, it actually says literally ben shana, which is son of a year. And that's a term used for less than a year. It was used of the accession year of a king before his reign went into, you know, if he got onto the throne, rather than counting his first year from then, they would wait until the first of the year to count. And so that less than a year period was called a ben shana, a son of a year. That's the term used in the Hebrew Bible. So really our English translations are slightly imprecise on that. It should be less than a year old's. And sure enough, what do you know? The archaeology matches it. And the few potsherds that are connected to this from these burials, guess what time they date to? They date to the reigns of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, his son. And that, of course, is the time of the Exodus Pharaoh. So that's what I stumbled into, and that caused a further research question, which was, if this truly is evidence of Israelites there, and they lived there for 430 years, like Exodus 12, 40 and 41 says, there should be some kind of other evidence. And that sent me on a research quest to see if there could be such evidence. And that's when I fell into one gold mine after another. I have something that makes me very angry, and that's the way a lot of Christian children's books are portrayed. Noah's Ark, you know, it's like a cartoon. And some of the pictures of the events of the Exodus and in Egypt, they're kind of cartoonish. And it breaks my heart because when kids look at that, they think, well, the the whole story of Genesis, Noah's Ark, the Exodus is a big cartoon. You know, it's a myth. We don't have to believe it. So what you're doing, I think, is fantastic. This really happened in time and space. If I had my Nikon, my Canon, I could have been there, take it on pictures and get all the chronology. Fantastic. It is. (laughs) This was a 10-year project to research all of this, to get sources, check sources, to write it all up. And so it's now, as of November 2021, my book is in print, Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. Well, I think this is just a tremendous tool that you've written. You certainly have done the digging, (laughs) the archaeology. What's the interest of the Austrian, I think you said it was the Austrian government was funding this? Why are they interested in it? Well, it becomes an academic research project. There are lots of digs going on in the biblical world, including Israel, but in and around Israel, let's say, that look at the peoples that are mentioned in the Bible. But most of these digs are begun and run by those who have no commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible at all. In fact, maybe the opposite. Maybe they they want to try to show that it's not true, or at least they will propagate the possibility of error in the Bible. What did you discover about the lifetime of Joseph? And what is the significance of the Egyptian names that you found for Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh? Yeah, that's a great question. And that really gets to the heart of some of the work that I did in that research quest that I went on to see if there was some form of evidence for Israelites there for 430 years. And so in Middle Egyptian inscriptions, I was able to, oddly enough, identify several biblical figures. One is Joseph, one is his two oldest sons, Manasseh is the oldest, and then Ephraim is the second. But honor went instead through the birthright to Ephraim rather than Manasseh. 
And then, oddly enough, one of Manasseh's obscure sons that you only read about in Joshua 17, 2. It's the one list in the Bible that gives us Manasseh's children. He had six. That son's name is Shechem. And on an inscription at a site called Sirabit Echadim, which is in Sinai, and that's where Egyptian-led expeditions would go to extract turquoise because they had a lucrative mining industry. And the Israelites, the early Israelites there, they were part of this and helped the Egyptians to exploit this and obviously made a mint. They made good money on this because, you know, you find the precious stone and you can sell it, you know, on the market or trade it and become fairly wealthy. And they would record every annual inscription there. What I discovered was that Manasseh is the one who recorded those. He goes by an Egyptian title called the brother of the ruler of Rechenu. A ruler could be like the equivalent of a mayor, for example, especially under Egyptian control. And the brother of signifies that he's less than someone who's called the ruler of Rechenu. And sure enough, at that same period at Avaris, that site I mentioned is biblical Ramses, there was an inscription found in, in a tomb. And this guy, this contemporary, he's called, his title is ruler of Rechenu. And his name is Disobek Amchat. And so these two are brothers. And the name of the brother of the ruler of Rechenu, who would be on these expeditions down to Serbe al-Khadim in Sinai, his name is fascinating. It's never used before or after in Egyptian history. It's a passive participle in Middle Egyptian. And it means he who was disfavored. Well, what happened to Manasseh? Favor was taken away from him when the birthright went to his younger brother, right? And his son, on a different inscription, is named Shechem, which is the name of one of the six sons of Manasseh. Disobekamchat, he who was appointed by Sobekamchat. This is the ruler of Rechunu. This is the mayor of Avaris. Well, who is Sobekamchat then? The guy who appointed him to be the mayor of Avaris. Well, if you look into the records of ancient Egypt, you will find that um, Sobek Amchat, he was the first vizier under Sesostris III, who has to be, according to biblical chronology, the famine pharaoh. And that fits for the time that Jacob moves his family there. So Sobek Amchat is the first vizier under Sesostris III. And that makes perfect sense with biblical history because Joseph was appointed second in command in Egypt and it all fits perfectly. Well, we've been delighted to hear Dr. Douglas Petrovich. He's the author of Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. Douglas, thank you so much for being our guest. My pleasure, Larry. More evidence of the Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus with Dr. Douglas Petrovich will be next time. Today, we are excited to offer Dr. Petrovich's brand new book, Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of the Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. This 314-page hardback book carefully examines the evidence that attests to the presence of Israelites in Egypt. Get this outstanding book and use the information inside its pages to refute the deniers of God's Word. Order your copy of Origins of the Hebrews today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Author and conference speaker Greg Patton comes now to share another story of hope and encouragement 
from living in today's world. A plethora of thoughts today on soul winning, a sizable church saying a nice thing, and pastors can't win. I have a truck driving friend that is a real soul winner, and he does it in so many ways. Here's his latest thought. He said that he was able to share Jesus Christ with, well, two people today. He's always on the street, holding signs, passing out tracks. He is a real soul winner, this guy. So back to these two. One was a stranger, the other man I've known for 10 years or so. Somewhat a friendly guy. I was walking to my car to come home, and this guy was leaving the shop and uh, stopped to just talk a few minutes. He had his mask on and quickly proceeded to tell me that the place he works for is for sale. No business, and he hopes to find work very soon. He was paid cash today to run a few errands for this guy. Hasn't worked since March 15th. He asked my opinion on the coronavirus, and before I could say anything, he started, This is the end of the world. It's end times, my friend. Pestilence, famine, wars everywhere. The Bible says all of this is going to happen. Armageddon. I said, If you think so, brother, you better make sure that you've trusted Jesus Christ to save you. You know what he did? He blew me off and laughed. This man laughed. How can a guy tell me a handful of events out of the Bible, even tell me that the Bible says this or that, yet when I tell him to trust Jesus, he laughs? Isn't that sad? Terrible? I was sure he was going to tell me about his conversion or that he had trusted Jesus recently. Nope, he just laughed. Conversation came to a quick close and bumped elbows and said, good knowing you. Hope to see you again someday. Really? You hope to see me again? That just happened. My prayer every morning is, Lord, make me the light to other people, and I will shine on them. Shine your love and your words twice today, and both times it was rejected. Will I stop? No way am I going to stop. Will I tell the story more and more and more? Yes. What hurts at times is people know all about the Bible, know all about Jesus, but will not accept him for salvation. My friend said this breaks his heart. Can't imagine how it hurts God. How about you? Have you trusted Jesus? Has a time come in your life where you realize that you were indeed a sinner and you accepted Jesus after asking forgiveness of your sin? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nothing more important today than trusting Christ as Savior. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you. That's today. Today's the day of salvation. Why not get saved today? So from winning souls to the size of your church, do you go to a big church? They're called mega churches. Do you go to a small church under 50, under a dozen? The small church, the big church, there's always a thought there. One seems to be always picking on the other. I was talking this week to Dr. Ken Copley, former pastor. He was friends with Jack Hiles. He used to have a big church in Hammond, Indiana. I guess the two of them had lunch every now and then. Copley had a small church. What, Hiles had thousands going to his. He said, yeah, we really appreciate the small church here in Hammond because we have some place to send our disgruntled people. Oh, boy. I think you need to see how prone some people are to accuse and question anything that they don't like in life. We're bad at that. 
The larger a church, the more capacity and manpower and resources they have to do, and the smaller churches can't do that. They're just not able to do that because of their size. Because God is a big God does not make him necessarily a stingy God or a greedy God, and neither does it mean that his people are that way. You paint with a mighty wide brush when you try and paint everyone in the same category. My observation over a period of time is that many more people are often slighted or ignored by small churches than they are by the large ones. The larger churches did not get large for no reason at all. Count me a friend of everyone who is doing the work of Jesus Christ today, whoever, wherever, whatever size you are, large, small, or in between, whether they have their flaws or not. Let him that is without sin go ahead and cast that first stone, and ultimately, those who are out there casting stones don't see any wrong in and of themselves. We're guilty trying to make everyone else look smaller by cutting them down and trying to make them appear small. And then I was thinking about compliments. Yeah, we like to get them now and then, don't we? We have our daily radio program called Hello World, news, information, and comment heard on many stations and on the internet literally around the world. What a thrill to that half-hour program every day and to hear from you and the wonderful things that you say. And yet, one of the best things is to hear from one of your children. We've been blessed in the Patton household. Sharon and I have six children. We've had 15 grandchildren. We're now moving into the great-grandchildren mode. And, you know, if it was this wonderful, we would have had the grandchildren first. You've probably heard that one. But still, great to hear from your kids. Well, one of my kids posted this on Facebook, must be thinking about old dad, and my daughter came through by reminding us pastors are frontliners too. While doctors care for the body's condition, pastors care for the soul's destination. Pray for pastors, those out there that are praying for you. Well, thank you. On another note, I love you, Dad, for your dedication, obedience, and that hard work. Side note here, biggest and best role models in my life are my parents. Love them so Oh, that's good, sweetheart. And then one more thing, living in today's world, I got a new truck, new to me. It's 15 years old, but this old girl is in great shape, not a spot on her inside or out. People are amazed a vehicle this old can look this good. But I guess I have a problem now. After the service this week, one of the men in the church came up to me, looked at the truck, had a thought or two. Now, preacher, you were driving that old green truck, and people were somewhat embarrassed that our pastor drove something like that. <laughs> it was an old GMC, rust everywhere, cost me $800. It got totaled out in an ice storm. So I went quite some time without one, and then this vehicle came along, and I was so excited to get this truck. Anyway, after the service, midweek here, the gentleman came up and said, we got another problem, Pastor. You had the one that looked like a junker, and people were embarrassed. Now you've got this thing that looks like a million dollars, and people are going to think no pastor should drive something this nice. <laughs> For all the pastors listening today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are thousands of stories living in today's world. We've just shared a couple today. 
Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus by Dr. Douglas Petrovich. This 314-page hardback book carefully examines the evidence that shows the presence of Israelites in Egypt. Order your copy of Origins of the Hebrews today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Dr. Petrovich returns with more evidence that the biblical story of the Egyptian origins of the Israelites' nation is reliable and true. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.